Good morning. It's good to be with you. I love you dearly. Thankful to be here with you. Uh, if you're a guest here this morning, thank you again for joining us. My name is Wes McKay, and I'm senior pastor and one of the elders here at Cross Point. Uh, glad that you have chosen to join us here this morning to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 34, Exodus 34, and we'll be looking at the first nine verses there. And before we jump in, I just want to say, want to praise the Lord for two healthy births of two new babies here at Cross Point, in Elodie and in Addison, Elodie uh, being Lauren Callum's grand, well, pa, um, Big Papa and, uh, and Mimi's uh, granddaughter, and then we have Shane and Hannah folks had Addison folks on Friday, and so two healthy babies born into our congregation. Praise the Lord for that. And so, but, um, but let's turn to Exodus 34, and once you've arrived there, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 34. Verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Let's pray. God, this is your word, and Lord, we are thankful for it, God, because it is through your word that you have revealed yourself to us that we can know you by, and so I pray this morning that our ears and our eyes and our hearts will be attuned to it, God. There are many things that have come to distract us, from, to derail us from, from knowing who you are through your word, and so I pray, let us put those things aside, God, and let us be focused on hearing from you and your word this morning. I pray, God, that we would have a, have a grander vision of Christ. We would see him in all his beauty and magnificence. God, we would see that you are a God who is truly merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and kindness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and who is just and will by no means clear the guilty. That is who you are, and let us see you for who you are, God. We love you, Lord. Be with us now. It's in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of us know what cliffhangers are. Cliffhangers are those parts in maybe a movie, maybe in a TV show that 
that you get to the end, the climax is built up, right? And then they drop you, right, at the last second. And you're like, there's no way that episode can end like that. There's no possibility. There's got to be a season two. There's got to be a sequel, right? We can't just stop right there or this would be a terrible waste of time. Anybody ever had that experience like that in watching a TV show? I cannot believe this is how it ended, right? Sometimes we hate cliffhangers. Sometimes we love them. It creates that suspense in us. Well, sometimes the Bible actually leaves us on cliffhangers sometimes. Like last week, if you weren't here, I'll just kind of give you a rundown. Exodus 33 is Moses, again, intercedes on behalf of Israel. God says, I'm not going up with you because you're stiff-necked, right? Because of your sin, I'm not going up with you into the land. But God, but God he, he says, I'm going to go with you. Moses has interceded, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you in the land. I'm going to keep my word to you as I promised to you in Genesis chapter 12. And so, but the last request that Moses had, does anybody remember what he asked? Show me your what? Your glory. Show me your glory. That's Moses' last request that he makes to God. And so God begins making preparations for him to show his glory. He begins to say, well, you look, you, you aren't going to see my face. I'll allow you to see my backside. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. and I'm going to cover you with my hand and all these things. I'm going to make the proper preparations for you to actually to see even a glimpse of my glory. And then the chapter ends. Chapter ends. And you're like, what's going to happen? What's this going to be like? And so we enter into Exodus 34, which Dr. David has already said, is, um, I, I would say, a pillar chapter in the whole new Bible. Because we get to see, get to get a glimpse of who God truly is, who is the Lord. And so Exodus 33 leaves us on a cliffhanger in Moses' request to see God's glory. But in, in Exodus 34, we get the picture. Moses gets to see a little bit of God's glory. And so we're going to look at two points today, just in nine verses, about what's going on just in these nine verses. The first point that we're going to look at is this. The preparations for a covenant renewal. Is that before anything is shown... God's going to take some actions that says something about him and his relationship with Israel. He's going to take some actions here in preparing for the covenant renewal. I was looking this past week about the shortest marriage ever recorded. The shortest marriage. You will not believe this story. I didn't believe it. I had to check many other sources. But the shortest marriage is, is um, three minutes. Three minutes. So here's, here's a story that I, that I found out. There's a, a couple in Kuwait, and they're married by a judge, and they're walking out, and on their way out, the bride trips and falls on the floor. Now, here's the mistake. The new husband laughs. Whew, bad mistake, man. First act as a husband should not be laughing at your wife when she trips. So, Wife, in an utter rage, goes back into the court and has the marriage annulled. Three minutes, right? That's the shortest marriage ever recorded. Now, some of you have been like, yeah, I've, thought, I've been there. I've thought about that. Maybe it wasn't three minutes into it, but I thought about it, right? But that's the shortest marriage. Right when a decision is made to laugh, the wife says, I'm done with this. I'm over. You have... You, you have ended this by just laughing at my embarrassment, right? Interestingly, Israel's relationship with Yahweh could have been annulled very quickly, right? 
God had just made this covenant with them on ex, in Exodus 19 and 20. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And there, Israel's like, yeah, I'm going to follow you. I'm, you're going to be my God. And I'm going to keep all your commands. Well, it doesn't, it's, they're not even off the mountain yet. It's like they haven't even left the stage where they got married. Then they start worshiping a golden calf. So if anybody was going to have the shortest marriage, it was going to be Israel, Right? So they gave up so quickly. But God does not give up so quickly. God decides not to annul the marriage. Actually, what he does, just in these first six verses, what we just talked about, no, he doesn't annul the marriage. He actually, he says, go make preparations to renew the marriage right now. Even though you broke it, I'm telling you, go make preparations. So he tells Moses, Go and cut new, two new stones, because everybody remember what happened? Moses came down from the mountain. He had the two stones, two tablets in his hands. What did he do? He broke them. He threw them down in anger after he saw what Israel was doing with the golden calves. And so God says, no, Moses, here's what I'm instructing you. Go, make two tablets of stone. I'm going to write on these the same commandments and rules and regulations that I wrote on the first set. I'm going to renew this covenant with you. I'm going to continue to keep my promise. And so he's to go, and only Moses is to go up this mountain. Kind of like what was said in Exodus 19, remember? Don't even let a sheep touch the mountain. Nobody come up the mountain, because it'll be dangerous for you. Same thing here in Exodus 34. Only Moses to go up the mountain, right? Only Moses to go up there. And something is happening on this mountain. Something spectacular. What Moses has asked for is coming true here. And you see that because, look at the language in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud, and He stood with Him there, and He proclaimed, in verse 6, the Lord passed by. All this language, the Lord descended, the Lord proclaimed, the Lord stood, the Lord passed by. This is all language saying, God is showing up here to Moses. God is appearing. It's what you would call a theophany. God is manifesting himself to Moses in a particular, rare, unique way that has never been done so far to them. It's magnificent. These, these occasions in Scripture are rare when there's a theophany, an appearance of God, manifestation of him. You remember that in 1 Kings 19, a similar situation happens with Elijah, right? He's there on the mountain, and God again appears, and he says, I'm not in the I'm not in the whisper, I'm not in the wind and things like that, I'm not in the fire, right? God appears to Elijah there. So something spectacular is happening in Exodus 34, unlike that we've ever seen before, is God is showing up, unlike before. What's interesting, I, I, I think, pointing our eyes to this in verse 6, because I think we can easily run over this word. The Lord passed by, or passed before him. It's a unique phrase. If you look back in Exodus 39, happens in verse 19, happens in verse 22, passed by. He will pass before you. Again, this phrase happens in 1 Kings 19 when it says that the Lord passed by Elijah. This language, this word here itself is the language of saying God's showing up. God is, God is appearing here for this particular person. Now, I want you to keep your finger on Exodus 34 real quick, and I want you to turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 real quick for me. 
And let me just, a uh, little side note while you're turning to Mark chapter 6. I know many of you have said, hey, Wes, can we go another 30 to 40 weeks in Exodus? Many people have you been saying that. I'm thankful for that. I know Exodus has been great. Many of people said, can we go another year? I know, I know, I know. I mean, look, I, I, I'm sorry. We're going to have to move on. I know we've been in this a year and a half, but we're going to have to go to another book. So in a couple weeks, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to work ourselves through that. So little teaser here, what you might be experiencing in, in, uh, in the next couple weeks. Mark chapter 6, and I want you to look at verse 48. This is a familiar story of where Jesus walks on the water before his disciples. They're in terror and fear, and they see Jesus walking on the water before them. And, you know, as you all know, would say, man, this shows that Jesus has power over the physical realm, that the, 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 the limitations of physics does not apply to Jesus in a similar sense. But there's an interesting word here that we've already seen in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. Look at what it says in verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he meant to, what do you see? Pass by them. That's weird, right? Why would he want to pass by them? Why would Jesus want to just keep walking? I don't think that's what Mark's trying to tell us. Mark's trying to say this. He's using that language from Exodus 33 and Exodus 34 to say this. God is showing up here to the disciples on the water. This isn't just any regular man right here. This is God in the flesh. This is a theophany, if you want to say that. This is God manifesting himself to his disciples. One author said it like this. Jesus is doing in Mark 6 for his disciples precisely what Yahweh did in Exodus for Moses, revealing who he is as a gracious Savior. So this is, this is God showing up. This is God appearing for his disciples, Jesus Christ. The God who appeared to Moses and to Elijah has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, another famous chapter is Matthew 17. Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. you got Jesus being transfigured in all His glory, and there's two other figures with Him. Anybody remember their names? Moses and who? Elijah. God is showing up. And so, here's just one point of application I want us to think through as we think about this. The Lord passing by, the God showing up here in Exodus 34, and that God is showing up when Jesus is passing by his disciples, is that this is the Lord God. He is the triune God, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ. He is deity, divinity, God in the flesh. And the reason I'm telling you this, the reason that uh, you might think this is elementary, this is, uh, I've heard this all before, is because here's the thing, church, is that there are movements today who want to de-deify, if I can use that language, Jesus, who want to make him more like us, make him more human. And let me just say this, I do believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, but to make him so human that he is no more the Son of God. I'll just read you a couple of quotes from people who like 
to call them progressive Christians, people who like to call themselves that. We'll say things like this, that we believe that Jesus of Nazareth possesses unique insight into the cause and provides a positive framework through which humans can improve themselves, both individually and as a society, to become more egalitarian and peaceful with one another. This is what another one says. Jesus was the perfect human who was also a perfect window to God. It's not as though there was a divine nature in him, but rather that his fully human nature was transparent to the God who inherits all reality. Do you, do you hear the problems with that? Do you hear the problems? He's not God. He just looks kind of like God, and he tells you kind of like what God might be like, but he's not God himself. But he's perfectly human. He's like us. Church, we have to fight against this. I mean, this is popular. Commercials are being made after this kind of stuff. Look, progressive Christianity will say this. It will say, Jesus is like a big brother or maybe a therapist to you. He's a big brother or a therapist, and he might want you to grow up to be like him. What the Bible says is that, no, Jesus is the Son of God whom every knee will bow to. Let us not forget that, church. Jesus is human. He sympathizes with us as Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 tells us. He knows what it's like. But he is still perfectly, fully God, the Son of God, whom every knee will bow to in the end, as Philippians 2 says. So our confession of who Jesus Christ is should be the same as Thomas's in John 20, 28. My Lord, my God. My Lord and my God. Don't fall prey to this idea that Jesus is just a human like us. He doesn't have any authority over me. He's kind of like a friend rather than... No, He's the Lord of all creation. And everybody will bow and worship to Him. And so this is who, this is, who is appearing here that the Lord God is showing up here to renew His covenant with Israel in Exodus 34, 1-6. But He moves on to say this. He moves on to say that He's going to reveal Himself in a particular way and tell Moses who He is like. And this is point number two on your outline. Just verses 6 and 7. The Lord God is. The Lord God is. You know, we live in a world and, uh, you know, we've always lived in this kind of world where we hear hearsay, right? And hearsay is basically rumor or scuttlebutt or gossip, whatever, whatever you want to call it. You know, I heard this from this person. I heard this from this person. You know, basically hearsay, information received from other people that one can't necessarily adequately substantiate. It's, it's rumor. It's, oh, it's just hearsay, right? We all use that kind of phrase, right? Well, I heard this about that person, or I heard this about that person. I hear what they're like. I hear what this is like, things like that. Thankfully, we don't have to rely on hearsay when it comes to knowing who God is. We can actually learn it from God's very own mouth here about what He says about Himself. And look, we just learned in our evangelism class this morning that Caleb uh, taught us is that in a culture where a lot of people have an idea of what God is like and who God is, but a lot of people haven't read the Bible. So that's a good question to start asking yourself. Saying, well, God is this, and God is this, and God is this. And if your red flags start going off, the next question you'd be like, have you ever read the Bible? Don't, don't you want to hear it firsthand of what God is like? I think that's what we all want. You want to be able to tell people what you're like. You don't want other people to tell other people what you're like in that sense. Here, you, 
We don't have to wonder and learn by hearsay what God is like. God tells us right here in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. He begins by relaying his attributes to Moses. And the first one he says is this. He says, is that I'm the Lord God, merciful or compassionate. Maybe some of your translations have. You know, when I think about this, I always think about you know, the king's guard or the queen's guard. Has anybody ever been, been to Buckingham Palace, seen the queen's guard, king's guard, stood there? Now, just tell us the truth. Did you make faces at them? Did you, you know, like, you know, nothing? No? That's what you see people do, you know, make faces. You're trying to get them to break, right? You want to see, you want to see them crack a smile. But their job is to basically stand there, cold face, kind of cold-hearted, immovable, unshakable, right? Not, not, not giving in to any sort of emotion. They're just, they're kind of stoned-faced, right? Kind of callous. That's what they are. And sometimes we can kind of have this perception of God in some sense, that he's just this unshakable, immovable, stoned-faced, callous sort of figure. But very, right here he says, no, I am the Lord God, and I am merciful and compassionate, Right? God is tender-hearted. He is moved by the plight of his people. And he's moved and by, by the plight to respond to it. We remember that in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. Is that he saw the plight of his people. And he listened and he heard. And he responded to save them. He heard their groans and their cries. Right? He's moved to relieve them of their stress. He feels something. He isn't cold-hearted. He isn't unmoved. He isn't unsympathetic. He isn't heartless. This is who God is. He is a compassionate God to you. He sees it. Psalm 103.13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. We remember what Jesus said in Matthew 9.36, when he's looking over the crowds, you remember what he says? And he has compassion on them because they are like what? Sheep without a what? A shepherd. That Christ has compassion on us. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're in the plight. You feel like you're in the dumps. You feel like no one listens to you. You've not being heard. No one has any pity. No one has any concern for you. No one has any compassion for you. Let me say this. The God of the universe that is passing by Moses right here, that walked across the water before the disciples, has compassion. He's the most compassionate person you will ever know. He is compassionate, merciful, and he does care about your plight. And what is going on? Not only does he say that he's merciful and compassionate, he says that he is gracious. He's gracious. And we're very familiar with this word here. He's gracious. We've all seen so far in Exodus 33 the word favor or grace here. He says, Moses says, that's, that's what he calls him, you know, calls before God. says, I know I found favor, grace in your eyes. I've no, I know I've found favor in your sight. So do these things, O God. And so God has shown favor and grace to Moses and to Israel at this point. And the graciousness of God is the generous act of giving favor. The generous act of giving favor to someone who's completely undeserving of it. The giving of something to someone who's completely undeserving of it. Has done nothing on their own to gain it, to earn it, to merit it on their behalf. But God just gives it. That's what he does. 
He gives things, particularly salvation, to people who completely don't deserve it at all. And that is all of our testimony here in Christ. That if you're in Christ, you did not do anything to earn, to get, to favor, to merit God's grace towards you. He gives it because He is gracious. That's what He does. This is what David says in his famous psalm in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me. And the next line is really important. Be gracious to me according to... And you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, be gracious to me according to my goodness. Be gracious to me according to my achievement. Be gracious to me according to what I've done. You know what he says? Be gracious to me according to your steadfast love and kindness. So what is grace based on? It's not based on us. It's based on who God is. Right? He's gracious. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Caleb talked about testimonies this morning. That is every single person in Christ here this morning. That is your testimony, Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. That is our testimony. And so God is merciful. He's compassionate, but he's also gracious. He gives things that we do not deserve. And the next thing he goes on to say is this. He's merciful. He's gracious. And he's slow to anger. Let me just say this. Man, this hit, one, this hit me hard this morning. Slow to anger. Who's got a short fuse in here? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. I'm not trying to out you right here. But think about this. Think about the things that... Look, there's some things that roll off our back like water, you know, off a duck's back. And then there's some things... You catch them on the wrong day, wrong time, and you've taken their coffee away, you're done, right? You think about that thing right now in your head. What's that one thing that just even a little bit sends you over the edge? It doesn't have to be even, even, even the biggest deal. And so sometimes, you know, when something happens to us that we... We feel that we've been offended, we've been hurt, somebody has tried to take advantage of us. Man, jump all over it. I, my, there's no fuse there. I blow up, right? Thankfully, God is not like that at all. God is slow to anger. He's already shown his slowness to anger in the book of Exodus. Think about this. Look, when I have a car full of wine and kids, my fuse is so short. Actually, I don't have a fuse. I just blow up. Think about this. God journeyed with Israel through the wilderness while they were complaining about bread and water. And they were actually talking about going back to Egypt because they had fish and cucumbers back there. Now tell me this, parents. Can I get an amen? Would you have blown your fuse? I'm going to blow my fuse. Thankfully, one author, author, author says it like this, God will put up with people's betrayal for much longer than is reasonable. God will put up with people much longer than we will. Aren't you glad God is slow to anger with us? He doesn't pull the trigger quickly with his wrath and with his anger, though he certainly could. His anger is not like ours. It's righteous. God doesn't hold grudges. His anger isn't unpredictable, right? He doesn't explode on someone out of nowhere. He's never sent over the edge in a second 
when something doesn't go his way. No, his anger is righteous, perfect, good, measured, timely, and slow. Slow. Praise God. Psalm 78, 38 says this, Yet he was compassionate. He atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. Listen to this. He often turned his anger aside and did not unleash all his wrath. He often turned away from his anger, though he could have certainly showed it. And just think of this. The patience that God shows us is for a purpose, church. Why does God, why is God slow to anger? Why is he kind in this way? It's so that it would lead us to repentance. That's what Romans 2, 4 says. Do you, or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Church body, listen to this. The reason God is slow to anger with you right now, the reason God has not unloaded his wrath and his fullness of his anger right now on you is because it's meant to lead you to repentance. Why is God being kind to you right now? It's to lead you to run to Christ and to run away from your sin. God's slowness of anger is a kind act to lead us to change. This is who God is. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is slow to anger. And it says God is abounding in steadfast love or steadfast covenant love. You know, unfortunately, we live in a world and a culture, and we've lived this way for a long time, where we deal with relationships or marriages that end after so many years, and maybe you are, are one of them, or maybe you have come out one of them, a child of one of them, where two parents have gotten together and say, we just fell out of love, right? Or we just don't have those butterflies that we used to have, right? We don't have that feeling that I once had for them, right? It's not the same. They've changed. We're not the same people anymore. Therefore, we're not in love or we don't love one another. That's the kind of idea of what love is, right? But God says that is not the kind of love that He has. He has abounding covenant love for His people. Unwavering commitment and loyalty to one another. Regardless of the other party's loyalty, right? Is that this love, His love is abounding covenant love. It's inexhaustible, right? He maintains this covenant love and loyalty to thousands of generations. It goes on and on and on and on through difficulties and trials and pitfalls. It keeps going on. That's what God's love is. There's no limit. There's no bottom. There's no expiration date to God's love for His people. It will never run out. It will never run out. It's not fickle or volatile. It doesn't come and go as, it, as He pleases. It remains the same because He re remains the same. His, one of his characteristics is he's abounding covenant love, which is different, is different from our love, right? For him. God says this about Israel. He says this in Hosea 6.4. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist and like the early dew that vanishes. Who would want their spouse to say, that's what your love is like? Your love's not like a rock that stays fortified and where it's at all the time. Your love is like a mist. It just comes and goes whenever, right? 
But God's love is abounding. As Paul will say in Ephesians 3, that we might be able to comprehend all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of the, God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses all knowledge. Right? That's the kind of love that God has for His people. He is a God of love and His love is abounding covenant love that doesn't change because He doesn't change. Next, he says, I'm abounding in love, but I'm also faithful or truthful. Faithful. And you don't have to question that. There was a show many years ago. I'm kind of glad it ended, I guess. I think it's ended, hopefully. Uh, the show called Cheaters. You remember Cheaters where there was one spouse who had suspicion that the other spouse was cheating on them. So they hired this uh, kind of reporter to go and private investigator to follow their spouse and catch them in the act. And then they would have the, all the camera crew there and, you know, show them and say, how dare you, da 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 And what that all started with is it started with suspicion. It started with questioning. It started with trustworthiness, faithfulness in that sense. Praise God that with God's faithfulness, who He is, His truthfulness, is that you never have to have any suspicion or questioning of who God is and what He is like. He always remains faithful and truthful to who He is and to what He has said. You never have to go in the back of your head and say, is God really like that? Will He really keep His word? Is that really what He's like? Does he really love me? Is he really merciful? Is he really going to keep loving? Maintain it? God says, I'm faithful and truthful. I don't give up. And there is no reason to question my reliability, dependability, or trustworthiness. Psalm 145, 5-6 says, Blessed is he whose hope and help is this the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord is God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Well, listen to this. Who keeps faith forever. Who keeps faith forever. Church body, whenever a situation comes up in your life, whenever the bottom falls out on you, whenever everything seems in dismay and crumbling underneath your feet, listen to this. When you begin to say, is God really truthful? Is he really right? Is he really good? Is he really going to keep me in this? Am I, gonna, am I, am I just going to be done for? Is he really going to keep his word to me? Remember this. He has never changed. He is never changing. And he will never change. He is faithful and trustworthy. That is who he is. He is faithful and truthful. And he is also Forgiving. Forgiving. Maybe you've had a difficult situation with a friend, maybe a person at your work, whoever it may be. But it's that kind of person, and maybe I pray that's not any of us in here, but that person who, when you've wronged them, they are going to hold it over your head for the rest of your life. You can shake your heads if you've ever experienced that. That person who dangles it before you, and says, oh, you remember when you did this? Yeah, that was 35 years ago. Okay, I took the toy in the nursery from you. Can you get over that? Seriously? Like, really? And they just kind of constantly dangle it in front of you, holding it over your head. You remember when you wronged me? Remember when you did this to me? Remember when you did that to me? 
always kind of making you try to work up to it and work it off in some sense, right? Holding it over your head, holding a grudge. Basically, you'll forever live in the doghouse with that person because of that one thing. Thankfully, that is not how God operates at all. That God says, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, steadfast love, faithful, but I'm also forgiving. That's God's disposition and act. That He's a forgiving God. That when we repent and turn away from our sins, He welcomes us back. That's what He does. He welcomes us with open arms when we repent and turn to Him. You remember the prodigal son? When he was far off, did the dad yell back and say, don't even come home. Turn back, go back to the pig trough, and don't even come back. I don't care how low you are. I don't care how much poverty you have. I don't, I don't care what you've been through. Turn around and go back. No, that's not what the father did at all. What did he do? Welcome him back with open arms. The God of the Bible here in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 says, when you repent, God doesn't hold a grudge over you. He doesn't dangle your sin over your head. He forgives you. He is a forgiving God. And he says this. He says, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's pretty interesting to say those three, right? He could have just said he forgives sin. But why do he say iniquity, transgression, and sin? It's kind of redundant, right? No, it's emphatic, right? It's saying basically... That there is no sin outside, outside the bounds of God's forgiveness if repented of. There's nothing so bad, so wrong, that any of you have done in here where if not repented of, God will not welcome you back and forgive you for it through the blood of Christ. There's nothing. He is a forgiving God and this is His nature. So if this morning you came here and you said, I have this weight of sin on me right now. It's so bad. It is so evil. And if I were to walk in and, and even, even present this before God, I would certainly be that prodigal son that has turned away. Let me, just, let me just welcome you with this. God is forgiving, and He will not turn away those who humbly repent and come to Him. This morning, you can have that. You can have that. Micah 7, 8, 10, Who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is who God is. So God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithful, keeps steadfast love, forgives. But then... We get a turn here. Kind of an unexpected turn here in these characteristics and attributes of God. Where he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty. At this point, you might have been thinking, maybe you're unfamiliar with the Bible, and you're unfamiliar with who God is, and you read all these characteristics and say, forgiving, oh man, merciful, gracious, abounding in love, steadfast, loving kindness. That's great. Sounds like God is a pushover. Man, I can do whatever I want. And he, he's going to forgive me because that's who he is. He's faithful and he's going he's gonna to forgive me and he's gracious, right? Man, he's a pushover. He's like, my, he, he's like my old grandfather who sat in his chair and I could never do anything wrong for him. That's, that's who God is like. 
God wants to make sure that he paints the portrait correctly and fully. That God is all these things. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is kind. He is forgiving and merciful. But he is also just. He's also just. Right? And he can be all these things and just at the same time. It's not either or. Is God gracious or is he just? Is God compassionate or is he just? Is is God slow to anger or is he just? He's yes and yes and yes to all these things. He's all these things perfectly at the same time. Because here's the thing. You don't want a God who is just, compassionate, gracious, merciful, forgiving, and not just. You don't want that kind of God. The pushover. You want a God who you can believe and know that one day, all the sin and iniquity and transgression that has taken place in this world will not be looked over. That even if it's not caught in this world, it will be caught one day before the eyes of the judge of all the earth. That's the kind of God you want to worship. That's the kind of God you want to obey. And he says this. He says that he's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the children's children in the third and fourth generation, meaning this, is that if each generation continues to do the same thing that every generation keeps doing, the same outcome is going to be it. God's going to judge sin. For example, the book of Kings. I mean, let's just say this. There ain't a whole lot of good kings in the book of Kings. Every one of them says, and he did like his father this sin, and he died. And he did like his father this sin, and he died. And he did like his father this sin, and he died. This is it. This is the story. Is that if Israel's children continues to participate in the sins of their fathers, God will continue to be just in these things. He is not a pushover. He is not lax. This morning, God is saying to Moses who he is. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is loving. He's faithful. He's forgiving and just. And this is not just momentary characteristics. These are eternal. This is who he has always been, who he is, and who he will always be. And what's beautiful about this church is that all these characteristics from God's mercy to God's justice, they come to fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Christ, all these find their fullest expression and embodiment. At the cross, at the cross church, we see God's compassion. We see God's grace. We see God's mercy. We see God's slowness to anger. We see all these things, and we see God's justice intersect at the cross. We're in Christ. Sin is atoned for. We're in Christ. God's kindness is shown to sinners. All these things that we read about who God is comes and intersects in the person of Jesus dying on the cross. 1 John 4.10 says it like this, In this love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God's love and the propitiation for our sins, appeasing God's wrath, come together at the cross. Romans 5, 8-11, But God shows His love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. In the death of Christ, God's love, God's justice come together. So if you want to see who God is, if you want to know Him, look at Christ. Look at Him. This is who God is. This morning, you might be here and thinking, I don't, I don't know what I walked into when I walked into this sanctuary today. I didn't know I'd hear something like that. I want to apologize to you. I'm sorry. But let me be clear about this. This is the God of the Bible. You can believe hearsay in this world, but this is who God says He is. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, I want to invite you to believe this about who God is. To see that He is a God, gracious, compassionate, merciful, forgiving, slow to anger. And that you can have Him now. If you turn from your sin, say, I don't want that anymore. I don't want that way of life. I want the God of compassion and grace and mercy. You can find Him by trusting in Jesus, placing your faith in Him, who is God in the flesh. This morning, if you're a believer here this morning, and you're fighting the battle of anxiety or what's going on in this world, and everything seems unstable, let me bring you back to who God says He is. This. This is who God is. And He will remain this way forever. Let's pray. God, I thank You for this day. You are all these things, God, and more. I pray that, God, in Christ, we would latch on to these truths of who You are in the shakiest of times. That, God, if anyone in here has not come to Christ, that they would see that this is the God I want to give my life over to. And in Christ, I can have all of who He is. Lord, let Your Word go forth this morning and bear fruit in our lives. It's in Christ's name. Amen.